You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions, or even the answers, are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host... Stuart Deloney. Good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and joining me as always is my trusty co-host, Ben Triplett. Ben. Word. I I hear that your wife is pregnant. She is. And I can remember a few times when I was a kid, and you're about to be a father. Where is this going? (laughs) When... I was left behind, oh. which we'll use as a really cheesy segue. Were, were you ever were you ever like lost or left as a child anywhere? Um, I wouldn't say I was left. Uh, I remember this was, I think, probably the moment, one of the moments that I sent the most panic into my parents' hearts and minds um, on July fourth when my sister and I decided to leave early to go to fireworks. And we took our bikes. My grandparents were over, so they were all, my parents and grandparents were getting ready to leave. And we just took off on our bikes, didn't really tell them, and rode down the road, got kind of lost in a neighborhood, ended up on someone's uh, houseboat. (laughs) This is a real story, true story. I don't wait. You went from bikes to houseboat. Yeah, we just. Okay. I don't know how some, I, and I don't remember tons about the night, but I do remember being on a houseboat. I was probably nine or ten, and uh, eventually we ended up back on our bikes, like kind of walking down uh, the really busy road that's closest to our our home. And thankfully, my parents saw us and were able to pull over, and they. I think we had called the police and they were just panicking because we were gone for hours. So it, yeah, that was, I, I don't know if it was left behind, but we, uh, we were lost. We lost ourselves. Yeah. It was, I, I halfway expected you were like, you were going to go into some sort of a narrative about like stranger things, the new Netflix show. It's funny. Kids I was on actually bikes thinking and, of that. Yeah. <laughs> getting lost in the woods. And that, that is true. We ended up with a little girl that has telekinesis. Powers. So I've I've finished that series. It's very rad. And have you? I know you're only a little ways in. Do you have any like snap thoughts? I'm not gonna. I'll. This will be spoiler free about Stranger Things. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, whatever my opinion means. I. It's been it's been very difficult because I just finished uh, The Wire. Just finished True Detective, which in my opinion are probably two of the best series I've ever seen. So I feel like it's not fair to anything. That well, season one of True Detective, season two of True Detective was kind of, eh. um, but I, I feel like it's going to cast everything in kind of a poopy light for a while. Yeah. Okay. Um. So it's it's not that it's bad. It's not that Stranger Things is bad. It's fun. It's just that's kind of what it is to me. It's it's it, it's the like feel of it. But I feel like there's a very obvious intention. I just think Netflix, their approach is sort of. They, they know exactly what people want to watch because they have all of these sort of like instruments to measure what people are interested in. Mm-hmm. And then they, they craft these 
easily marketable things to people. Yeah. So that's kind of going into it. I know that's, it's not necessarily about the, the art of what they're doing, but a huge part of it is crafting something that is going to be palatable to people's tastes at a certain point in time. Yeah. Um, so I think going into it, knowing that and just thinking like, eh, this is fun, you know, it's throwback to eighties. That's kind of cool. Um, is it like, the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I want to watch like the next episode right now. Eh, not really. It's, inter- it's interesting how I, I mean, I like hearing your perspective on it. It's interesting for me because it became like a family obsession uh-huh. going through the eight episodes of this. Because again, um, one of those things that I love is, is that I get to see things through my kids eyes to some degree. Yeah. And so all of this kind of stuff was really new, but yeah. So for me going through it, cause we went through it in just like several days mm-hmm. and it was super fun just having them connected in and wanting to watch something. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's been the whole idea of kind of that, that scary, creepy thriller sci-fi type of a thing has been mm-hmm. a hard thing to get them into because they, um, they'll watch about anything. But I remember like two instances, my, my oldest daughter really wanted to watch the walking dead and Ooh. just the menacing, creepy nature of it. We never, yeah. we didn't get more than 15 minutes into it. Like Rick never left the hospital, but it was just like the scary lights, the sounds and everything. And Ada's like, I'm good. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but speaking you're, of, you're definitely right. I mean, part of it is being in something with someone else and you can both. And I think that like true detective had a whole like Reddit following. And I think that was a big thing about it, that everyone wanted to guess what was happening next. And yeah. There were all these weird references to kind of marginal like horror writers and all these things going on that people could then talk about. So I think that's part of it. You know, to me, that's what's great about music is being able to pull like all these references together and talk about, you know, what people were thinking or feeling kind of in the moment of making it. And yeah, that's the greatest series to me have been the ones that I've been able to watch with Kelly. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think that might be a better segue into left behind because I think that's what, (laughs) that's what really pulled people together on this is this sort of, it's like you're reading a book, but then it's connecting you with your world and with a community of people and trying to like read these signs of what's going on in your world. So you, you start having like political discussion, you know, I think back in the nineties it's, you know, Saddam Hussein or whoever, whatever world leader at the time people didn't like is, you know, Nikolai Carpathia, the, the antichrist. And, um, you know, I think at one point people thought like Oprah was the antichrist and, I mean, who, you know, whatever person you don't like at the time and is scary to you is the Antichrist. Um, especially, and, especially when they give up free cars. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's I mean, that's, that's a that's, total Antichrist move. Exactly. Sarcasm. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. And just being able to like, there, there's this whole culture that we can get into. I would love to talk about it. I've actually studied this stuff um, in both in the church and in the classroom at uh, UNC. So let, let, let me pause real quick. Because I think we even, we out-segued ourselves. Have we segued to segue? We did. Well, we, we segued so well, I think it was so seamless that no one actually completely knows at this moment <laughs> what we're talking about. It was that good. It was slight of, slight of hand. So, yes. What brings us to even this topic, uh, because like you'd even mentioned, what was it, like 80s, 90s, when like the whole Left Behind book series came out? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that we're not using that as current news. Like, hey, have you guys heard about this new book series? Um, <laughs> well, Nicolas Cage did make he did a movie like last year, and I have not sat down and watched it yet. 
Um, Shame on you. I know. Have you? Uh, I watched pieces with Kelly. Just she got impatient waiting for me, so she watched it, and I was in and out. I have to be in the right mood to be able to deal with like the schlock that's going to be happening. You know, on <laughs> top true. of it with with Nick Cage. Yeah. So like those are two things. But um, the reason we're even bringing this up was, and and I'll go ahead and preface this. It was like I think a week and a half ago. Tim LaHaye, who's the author of the whole series that has yeah. a huge following and everything else like that, passed away. And the purpose of us talking through this isn't, and I, I, I we want to talk. I want to talk about like the cultural impact or the cultural damage. I, I think that kind of happened because of a lot of this stuff. Um, but this is no way that we are pissing on his grave. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't want to. I want to really deconstruct more of the kind of cultural impact of things. Not actually, we're not attacking the man or anything else like that. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I want that to be fair because I, you know, I, I don't. I think it would be in bad taste for us to just say someone died, good riddance, and just riff on that for the whole time. Because I mean, there may be a, an, a show where we do that. <laughs> I'm not ruling it out, but but that's not the case here. I mean, the legacy is huge with Left Behind, and and regardless of how people feel about it, this is just an anecdotal uh, evidence to me of um, how this how big Left Behind is. I had a friend or have a friend who is an atheist and I mean, is the furthest thing you would think from someone who is religious, but read through the whole series because he just found it interesting. And the whole, I mean, it reads like fantasy and sci-fi. And so I feel like, you know, even without that religious component, it's, it's a compelling book. I, I wouldn't call it like great literature, but it's interesting to people. So, so for those that may not be initiated into this, like explain. I, I don't want like a sonat, like, I don't want like a summary. <laughs> you don't of, want like, a summary of all nine or twelve no, books. Or whatever. that's not what I'm at. But but give us like I don't know. What is your like two or three sentence overview? If you were to describe someone that describe this to someone that did not know what these books were. Yeah. So there's and we'll talk more about the the kind of movement to uh, behind this behind left behind uh, <laughs> left behind the true story. Um, no, basically. It's the idea that, you know, there's a rapture, which is this um, a, a specific Christian idea within like a specific Christian tradition that Jesus is coming and is going to pull up everyone from the earth that is a, a quote unquote true Christian um, and take them to heaven. And then everyone else sort of suffers through all of these trials on earth, like Satan coming to earth and ruling and the Antichrist and um, there are lots of like, I don't call them miracles, like supernatural events mm-hmm. happening. And there are prophets and dragons and, uh, 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 so, so yeah. So that's, I mean, for, for those that don't know lots of church speak, I mean, uh, we would use the term eschatology, which is kind of just the belief of how things are going to end. Um, would be I think the churchy word that we'd be using end of the world end of the world stuff yeah as REM called it yeah and and on top of it so this isn't just stuff that comes from nowhere this a lot of this has come from the book of Revelation well the would, Bible. yeah well no I mean yeah, not I mean true. that's that's where I like the whole talks the, of eschatology comes from I mean there's book of that's Daniel where the and symbolism stuff. and stuff yeah, yeah. definitely comes from. And, and it's, again, it's one of those, one of those books in the Bible that I think leads to lots of speculation, lots of conversation, because, I mean, it is, I mean, there's, there's, 
it's it's funny. Like when when I when I hear people talk about or preach about, especially referencing Revelation, a lot of time there there's those kind of like how people like to henpeck through stuff, like to where this is figurative and this is literal as you're mm-hmm. reading through this, and it just happens. People like to use that whenever it suits them. Mm-hmm. When when reading through Revelation, which again it is, there's lots of symbolism. Uh, I mean, I think there's certain things that we can gain from it, but I think there's a whole lot of mystery to it as well. And so the idea of really going through this as a, what, I mean, if we're laying this out like it's a literal timeline, well, this, this happens, this happens, this happens. And and typically those, um, I mean, because, I mean, in the church, historically, the belief of how things are going to happen in the end is wildly debated amongst many different groups. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's like art. I mean, it's it's like any type of art. You There are lots of symbols, and you can read meaning into it. You can also derive meaning from potentially seeing the, you know, the the age in which it was created, and mm-hmm. trying to see the, the the problems that the author was responding to, and things like that. So some people just tend to take it on face value and read into the the symbols what they think it means. Well, and I think it also just needs to be said too that that the style that John is that uh, he's just John, who actually wrote the book back from Bible times. I mean, that was, he's writing kind of in a genre. Right. Um, an apocalyptic Apocalypse, genre. Yeah. And so I think that sometimes when people read it and it's smushed together, because again, I would say the Bible is kind of like a library. Yeah. Uh, when you look at it, not like a cohesive, and people would argue with me for saying this, but you know, not necessarily a cohesive, like from point A to point, you know, that it was written completely, but with the same narrative voice, the same style, the whole way through, which some people view the Bible that way. Um, and so when you approach stuff like Revelation, if you're having this idea that everything is kind of like this is one large book that you've gone from the beginning to end on with the same author, the same uh, narrative style, th- it can be really weird once you get to you know to Revelation. And I think not seeing this as kind of the seeing the Bible as a library um, of books of different people's experiences with God, you know, throughout history, um, I think it tends to mess up how you read Revelation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you see it as just one large work. Yeah. Um, and then also, I guess what I'm really trying to get at is that, that John in that book is writing a, a specific genre or style. Right. And um, if we just assume that this is part of a larger narrative, it gets kind of weird and wonky without like commenting that this way, he's actually writing in a specific style here. I don't know. Yeah. I took and way I, too long to say that. Sorry. No, no, no. That's, I mean, it's a really good point. And I also want to point out that, I mean, there is a history to this reading of revelation. It, it's something that showed up more in the kind of 19th century, like um, mid to end 19th century. You have people like uh, I know William Miller was one person that started counting um, the numbers in Revelation and trying to like predict the date of the end of the world. He got it wrong. He had like a huge uh, following in his area, which is somewhere in sort of like northern United States. Um, and then he, when he got it wrong, then he tried to predict it again for like a year later. He was like, oops, I missed a number. Um, so there was this kind of culture of like counting and looking at symbols. And part of that connects into the way that uh, kind of modern thinkers were were starting to look at the world and trying to find evidence and um, taking things 
not taking things at face value, but asking lots of questions and, and trying to derive like methods of, of being able to think, because if you have a method, then you're taking yourself out of it. Sarcasm. Sorry. I, I, meant, I meant to hit the uh, sarcasm button, but uh, I hit the laughing, which both of them. Um, <laughs> I know. I was like, what, what is going on in my ears right now? <laughs> no. So, um, so anyway, from this, you have um, this movement called uh, it, the really clunky term that scholars use is uh, premillennial dispensationalism that uh, people created this kind of method or system of thinking of time that there were dispensations that you can find symbols in the Bible of figuring out these dispensations. And then um, from that, you can figure out when this sort of end of time is. Almost always, it's whatever time you're living in. Um, <laughs> That's true, yeah. You know, so, so that way you can look at all the symbols and be right about what you're seeing in the world. And uh, the premillennial part, I think, is important as well because it's the idea that there's this millennium. There's uh, the millennium means this thousand-year reign of Jesus, which is also something that, that that's pulled out of the Bible and with numbers and stuff like that. And uh, the premillennial part is that there's something that's going to happen, kind of first, which is also an, an apocalyptic thing that God is somehow going to intervene in the world, and that you know that's the rapture part. That's the um, letting Satan loose on the earth and, you know, to do all these things and all these signs happening and supernatural things. That's the, the pre-millennial part. And then after all that happens, then you get the millennium, which is Jesus um, sort of ruling or whatever. So people, there's actually an entire Bible written with this system in mind. So in the sort of 19th century, you have this system um, and then it gets picked up by some people in like the 60s, 70s, 80s that are want to sort of revive this idea that we can look at the times. And, and the 60s were a pretty troubling time um, for some people. They saw tons of change in the world. And so what do you do? You say, oh, this is the end of the world. And you start seeing symbols. And so Tim LaHaye, I think, comes from this tradition. And, and in the article, it says, you know, he had this idea. He was riding on a plane and was thinking, what if the rapture happened? And, you know, what would happen to the plane and the people on it? Um, so that's actually the, the the beginning of the Left Behind story. Well, really what, I mean, how that had happened was he was on the plane and the in-flight movie was, um, was Con Air. <laughs> and so he was able to really just kind of, you know... Which is his connection seen, with Nick Cage. Absolutely. And it yeah. totally, I mean, that... Finally, hit all come together. I mean, and even like the way Sarcasm. you're. Thank you. Um, even the way that you're describing the way like that folks are approaching this and reading it, it really makes more sense with Nick Cage. I mean, because now I'll have to go and watch the movie today, but <laughs> simply because you're almost making it sound like it's like National Treasure Three. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really is that it's pulling on this idea that there are all these hidden things and puzzles that you, once you figure it out, then. Or the Da Vinci Code, I think, is another... I mean, National Treasure is basically the Da Vinci Code for kids. But, yeah, it's this idea that we, we can solve puzzles. And I don't know. It, it I was definitely drawn to this. I, I grew up in a tradition, maybe we'll talk some about this as well, that idea of sort of, you know, it's a Turner burn, but it's it, 
pulls yeah. in this preaching about it being the end of the world and where do you want to be kind of at the end of the world when the rapture happens. And you go to, I, I would go to these conferences where they would give you workbooks and you would figure out <laughs> what the symbols, they had pictures in them that were drawn by some artist of like all this stuff happening. And I don't know. It was weird. Just an example. Um, Do they have like, was there like a rapture coloring book or something like that? too? Yeah. It it literally, that's what it is. Like, yeah. Basically a rapture coloring book. Can you color the people being thrown into the the pit of fire? There is, there is, I think a pit of fire in there. Um, (laughs) And the the thing that I remember, it was something about, us having like heavenly bodies and they said that you could run from one end of the universe to the other in like a second. Mm. It's, it's just, I mean, it's trying to explain and be literal with things that I don't think were meant for, you know, that, that wasn't the intention when people wrote the whatever symbols or the metaphors, but people have picked this up and whatever their intention they are there. There's lots of puzzles and things that they try to solve, and they give you their explanation for it and charge you to go to a conference to learn about it. So, and or publish a best-selling series. Well, and and I think too that I mean we're kind of deconstructing a few things within this. I mean, I think two things need to be said when we're looking at this. One, that there is a whole, uh, I guess, strand of scholarship behind like approaching Revelation that all those things already happened. When you read the book, that it, mm-hmm. like most of those were describing stuff that was happening within Rome uh, during the oh, time right. and during the lifetime of, of John and everything else right. like that, too. Yeah, so that's the one idea, interpretation. That is one, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also just secondly, just to, to note to all of this, like you'd said this, and I just want to point it out even more, that that like this uh, obsession with end times in this, I mean, a lot of this that we're talking about is only like the past 100, 150 years mm-hmm. with a lot of this yes, viewpoint of very it. very recent. And, and I think that one thing that we forget about if we don't really look historically at how the church has walked and progressed and gone through stuff, we can just assume this is how it's always been. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I, you know, I, I, I know people that are obsessed with this kind of stuff, pastors, um, and they will preach this like this has been all. This is part of church history. Like this is, a, you know, this is a, a voice. This is a kind of a, a strand or a narrative that has always been around. But I think it's also interesting to point out the fact that some of this this way of interpreting it has only been around for a short period of time. If you're looking, if, you, if you're comparing it to, I guess, the the entire history of the church. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that part gets lost in this too. Yeah. And it's definitely, I think when you're preaching, the people, you're right, people do get very caught up in the sort of symbol, um, symbolism and, and the method. But I think what one of the dangers is that when you are trying to identify very specific things in your world that you're, um, I mean, you're othering for one and you're definitely, you're, you're sort of like labeling enemies or you're labeling bad, bad things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I think there are a couple of dangers there. One sort of the obvious danger that I I think more people are catching on to now that we can't just, you know, scapegoat everyone yeah. that doesn't fit in with our worldview. Um, but also I think implicitly it's dangerous to, to other because then it somehow makes you okay. Like you're, you know, and that, that's definitely one of sort of the bedrock fundamental ideas in, in the movement is that 
once you say a prayer and convert or whatever to to yep. Christianity that you're good. That's that's kind of the one thing you need to do to get caught up in the rapture and that, you know, anyone else who hasn't done that is sinful, evil, you know, um, going to hell or whatever. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of this, one, you'd mentioned that um, the kind of this the train of thought leads to scapegoating. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it didn't. Scapegoating's been around since the beginning of oh, yeah, humanity. Yeah. Um, this is a new form of scapegoating. It is. It's kind of a Christian scapegoating. But I think also what it does is is it creates this kind of bedrock of Christian escapism, too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's another big thing. You know, I mean, the idea that somehow we're going to be again, which which I would say that that whole like that that whole idea and that whole kind of thought stream is very Gnostic, um, mm-hmm. and the idea somehow that like the Gnostics believing simply that the spirit is pure, and that those things that are terrestrial or flesh or of our world are are bad, mm-hmm. and so the only way that we can somehow get to the pure place is to leave it, you know, that God Mm -hmm. will come and rescue us out of this horrible place that we live in that is just covered in sin and everything else. And then blow it up. Yeah, blow it up. (laughs) And then like... Which which also completely negates, I mean, the first book of the Bible where mm -hmm. God creates everything and says that it's good. Right. You know, so again, it kind of... um, I think that folks like to hold the idea that God created stuff and that's good in one hand... And that God's going to burn it all up and get us out of here. On the other hand, but never like fold your hands together with those mm-hmm. two pieces of, of how they think about it. Like they, as long as we keep these apart, um, our ideology makes sense. And I've never thought about the irony that you know that because you're totally I, I I agree with you on that. When going to some of these conferences growing up, there is this idea that like why take care of the earth? You know, it's going to go away. Um, I remember explicitly thinking that growing up that God's going to destroy the world, so why do anything uh, to take care of the world? And ironically, it might be people with that attitude that actually end up burning up the world. Um, Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. It's not God. It's the Christians that are, you know, foolishly think that the world is just going to be blown up anyway. Well, you I mean, you're right. I mean, if if you feel like we're on a sinking ship and none of this matters and that God's going to rescue us, the idea of caring for the environment really doesn't matter. Right. You know, the idea of kind of, I mean, living in in the long term, like how do we make this world better to leave it to our children really goes out the window. Right. And and one thing I think has been funny um and the nearing four decades of me being on this earth, I feel like at every age I've been at, there's always somebody saying, you're mentioning like looking for the signs of end times and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's, there's always been folks that have been like, oh, man, the end is near. Jesus is coming back soon. Yeah. And then it's like, but, but it's funny because you, you hear this over and over again, much like you said, like the guy that was trying to predict the dates, the exact mm-hmm. dates to the end of the world. Yeah. But it's like that. I mean, it's, again, I think what you were saying is it's scapegoating. Like, we end up doing this, this, the whole thing, and, yeah, I mean, it's, oh, we're in the end times. Oh, it's going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen soon. And it's, but this is just this thing that rings true over and over and over again that I hear consistently with people, even though the world doesn't end and things keep moving on. And, right. you know, I, I mean, I think that, and I think that's it's one of the damaging things that, that has happened within well, I mean, I think that it's not simply just this book series has spawned it. I think this this book series threw a lot of fuel onto the fire to keep it going. Mm-hmm. 
um, the, these kind of false narratives where it's really just, yeah, about us not being engaged, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the things that are going on, not engaged with the suffering, not engaged uh, with the atrocities we're doing to the environment. And, and it gives us an excuse to just be able to step back and, and disengage and just not care about it. Right. And someone mentioned that this book series is probably one of the, I think they said, was it, I guess Falwell said that this book series was the most influential book series on Christians or books on Christians outside of the Bible. And at first I wanted to resist that. (laughs) It sounds like Trump almost. Yeah, I know. But I mean, honestly, I I mean, if you think kind of on a, on a great grand scale, I mean, they have sold millions and millions of copies. Um, they have had an influence on the way that people see the world, and and you know there are movie series that are spawned by them. I I don't want to say that the ideas are you know really important and have changed the course of Christian history, but it. I mean, these books are extremely influential on the way that people see the world. I just would say I don't know if it's in a good way. Oh, yeah. oh, I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's, and that's, you know, that's one thing that we, we do here on the show. One of the reasons we have this show is simply that you have these two guys that are, well, we're both ex-pastors and that are kind of sick of the way that American Christianity has gone um, and really feeling like it's been moved off path. And, and stuff like this, I, I really do think, I mean, at You'll have it like you'd mentioned, like Falwell said, oh, it's so influential. I mean, just because it's been influential doesn't mean it's been a good thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I can think of that, that series, stuff like Purpose Driven Life and all this other kind of stuff, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. I was trying to think of some of the, like, um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I feel like is probably one of the big ones. Yeah, um, but I, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, influential wise. Prayer of Jabez was a <laughs> yes, big one for yes. a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, but these kind of things, but I think ultimately what they do is they end up being very, and I'm not talking about like C.S. Lewis's stuff. I'm talking about the other stuff we were mentioning. They end up being very easy and palatable for the masses. And uh, most of the time ends up making us feel good or, or engaging us in a way that still doesn't challenge us. You know, when they're, again, mm-hmm. you were talking about how it's um, these things have been, you know, influential, like second to the Bible type of thing. Not your quote, but you're quoting someone else. And within that, I mean, I think that when you, when you read the Bible, it should challenge you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think these works really challenge people, which also why, is why I think that they become very popular. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm doing my spiritual thing, and, and it's easy. You know, like purpose serving life, oh, I can do this and feel good about myself type of stuff. You know, I mean, it ends up being kind of very like, oh, like, uh, yeah. It just sort of, it, it feeds where you're already at. Yeah. And it like facilitates, yeah, where you're already at, which is, uh, I mean, it's the the evangelical church in the last 50 to 60 years, I mean, that's that's been the, the, the thrust, in my opinion, has been how do we make this as easy on people as possible to get people in? Because it is, it's, it's driven by this idea that we need to reach as many people as possible and I mean, honestly, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think it also goes hand in hand with capitalism. It's yeah. sort of like let's get down to some things like as as base value as possible. Let's maximize the numbers. Let's maximize the profit. Um, you know, I don't think I don't I wouldn't say that pastors just explicitly say that or or think that. 
Um, there are churches that are built on uh, business models. I mean, a lot of churches now are built on business models, especially evangelical churches. I was laughing at your use of the word some. Yeah, as, as, many. As, as a, yeah. <laughs> many, many churches. But, you know, sort of at, a, at its base, it's it makes sense because we live in the United States. We just assume that capitalism, you know, those sort of capitalistic principles that everyone's out for themselves, that, you know, if we do sort of pursue self-interest, that it will benefit everyone or more people at once, that kind of stuff. Um, So, I mean, it makes sense that you would try to do something that's more marketable, that you would open it up to more more people. Um, With Left Behind, I think what's Interesting. It, it also goes kind of hand in hand with the evangelical idea that you you need to sort of make things as simple as possible. Um, Tim LaHaye actually wrote a book on his like method of reading Revelation and re- and reading this sort of stuff. And it's really strange. It's sort of be literal as much as possible. So read things literally as much as possible. So if it says there's a dragon, you don't try to you know coming out of the ocean, which is one of the things in Revelation unless you can find some reason that a dragon wouldn't come out of the ocean, you know, and you don't see something in, in that, that, uh, contradicts. It's really strange. Like I mean, contradicts it, the world around you or it happened in Pacific Rim. That's true. So that could, so totally we're, we need to make giant Christianity robots. <laughs> that, Sarcasm. Um, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, sorry, I totally threw off your train of thought. No, 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 that's too. fine. So uh, just this idea that you want to take things as, as simply as possible to reach as many people as possible, which is, was also sort of an evangelical thing um, in the, in the, has its roots in like the market preaching, you know, um, of early evangelical Christianity in, in the United States to go out and to put things in plain terms for people. Um, I don't want to call it dumbing down because I think there is some benefit in that, but uh, it's the intention behind it. It's let's let's get this out to as many people as possible. So let's like take things that are tough and let's just assume that you know everyone's going to understand them right off the bat. Well, and 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 with that, I liked how you were tying this in with capitalism uh, because when you when you think about this and when you have folks like Falwell and and, and some other other article I was reading about was I think it was like Christianity Today was really saying oh one of the most influential but I think that we say things are influential simply based upon how many copies were sold numbers yeah yeah I mean but but we do that like oh these were best selling all these best selling series and and we're using influence. And we're also using sales in order to be able to quantify that, mm-hmm. which which really tells me, I mean, how many people's lives were changed by this, how, you know, all this other kind of stuff. No, 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 no. We want to know the sales of it because that that is successful. Versus something like Karl Barth's Dogmatics of Christianity, which I'd, I've read maybe like five pages of it. I mean, there are thousands of pages of this document or the, of this book, uh, these books. But they're super influential because scholars find the ideas intriguing. They might not sell millions of copies, but it's very influential. So that kind of being another uh, contrast to what you were saying. Well, it is because I think I think that the way that we're even quantifying, which is a whole other probably show we could do, how we quantify um, well in the American system of doing this and in, in the Church of America system that we do this, how we quantify what in, is in, influential. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like how you're talking about these these other works that end up being very um, seminal 
and um, what I would call more influential, but they're harder reads. Mm-hmm. Not simply because of the language they use or the scholarship that they go behind it, but I think that the thoughts are challenging. Mm-hmm. The thoughts move us. I mean, because there's certain stuff that, I mean, C.S. Lewis at times is, is hard to get through because it's dense, and the ideas that he's unpacking are hard mm-hmm. um, with that. And I think that, you know, we like to say things, because most of these works we're talking about, and they're folks that we rip on. I mean, you can say the, you know, think of like the best-selling Christian authors like the Osteens, or like the Rick Warrens, you know, all of these are very much like what you say, like pillow fight mm-hmm. type stuff. You know what I mean? It's it's like a Christian pillow fight that's happening. But when you talk about reading stuff like Lewis or like Barth or some or all these other folks that that I would say have have deeper truths to them, it's kind of like the folks that you know you're you're bringing a knife to a pillow fight. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it's a di- it, it's a difference, and you're um, and it isn't going to reach as many people. Uh, but when we look at this in the Bible, like there's times where Jesus he says, you know, Jesus preached a hard lesson and the crowd thinned. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that some of these things aren't meant to be easy. They're not meant to be palatable. They're not meant to be bestsellers. They're not meant to, uh, yeah, I mean, be something that just everybody, oh, sure, I can do this. I mean, I like, you'd mentioned this before, too, this obsession with how um, a lot of this LaHaye stuff fit in with this whole obsession with evangelism. Mm-hmm. You know, meaning getting as many people saved as quickly as possible. But when you do that, it ends up being, and, and I think some of this stuff has spawned this, which I do need to note, one of the other things without the Left Behind series, one thing that it did give us uh, was Christian Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because again, I mean, I think that that launched his career in a totally different direction. Oh, yeah. Being able to star in that and other things of that nature. So thanks, Tim LaHaye. That was like his coming out party as a Christian. <laughs> yes. Just the idea of coming out party. Yeah, never mind. Yeah. Um, but no, but 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 really how, how it changed how, one, you're right. I mean, I think it turned our faith into a sales pitch. And, and when you're trying to, I guess, put together a sales pitch, like you'd mentioned before, man, that we want to make this as simple as possible, as dumbed down as possible. And I think in, in the end, um, requiring as little um, as possible of you mm-hmm. in order to step in this. But I think that when we see the way that Jesus offered this to folks, he would give the hard teaching, he would he would give the, uh, an, an invitation, but the invitation came at a cost. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't simply that whole idea of, you know, Jesus is my own personal savior. Yeah, and I, th- you know, I think it connects into with this idea that the the kind of Protestant in general idea that um, knowledge is available to everyone. That you you know post post Protestant Reformation, you get sort of everyone publishing the Bible and. Um, local languages and vernacular, not in Latin anymore. You don't want Catholic priests like mediating the meaning of scriptures and stuff like that. And I think, I mean, I think there is kind of an important idea in that. I mean, I am a Protestant. I I have very strong Catholic uh, leanings, but I, I can understand that, you know. And uh, but kind of on the on the flip side of that, the idea that just anyone can read something and glean important meaning. Um, I think it takes the work out of it. It takes the humility out of approaching a text. And uh, I mean, it takes the thought out of it, honestly. Um, so there's some sort of, there's some sort of middle ground or there's another way of being able to wrestle with something of not having an immediate meaning, especially with scripture. And, and I think texts that are much deeper than something like left behind. 
um, being able to sort of wrestle with it over a long period of time in community with other people. And you can definitely have a voice in that. And I think the more voices uh, that can contribute, the better, which is maybe more of a Protestant thought. I don't know. Catholics would maybe argue with me on that uh, because there are a lot of voices in the Catholic Church as well now. But sort of on the flip side, I think there is a value in someone having dedicated their lives to understanding the meaning of something and being able to kind of get glean from their perspective or their wisdom, which is that's that's kind of contrary to the the modernist thinking that everyone should be able to stand on their own two feet, think for themselves, apply some sort of method to take themselves out of what they're thinking you know, not relying on the tradition um, that has come before them anymore, but being able to think for themselves. I think there's there's something, there's another way between those two things or apart from those two things where you can gain from the strengths of both. Well, and, and, I, and yeah, I liked how you were laying that out. And when we begin to think about how capitalism has influenced the church in many ways, I think that what these when you begin to look at books like this, when you begin to kind of run in um, circles that think like this, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that what, what we've begun to see more and more um, and that middle ground that you were kind of trying to talk about was, is the fact that at most churches on a Sunday morning, the pastor's job is to tell you how to think. Mm-hmm. Is, is somehow that what it's become is you take scripture and since you've been to seminary and you know all this and you simply kind of chew it up and you, know, and you can use a Greek dictionary. <laughs> yes, it makes you sound smarter. <laughs> One of my pet peeves. Um, no, but it ends up being kind of like what you see like mama birds do. You know, they kind of chew up the food enough and then they spit it in their baby's mouth so the baby doesn't have to, to actually chew it on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's what begins to happen. And we see this in congregations where we're not necessarily equipping people to think on their own, to read it on their own, because what we see walked out by the leaders is is simply just we will go ahead and pre-digest this food for you so you don't have to think and you can know what to think. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, I mean, that, that's a control structure mm-hmm. is how you set that up. And I think it's, it, it feels dangerous to give people tools and then allow them to walk it out and figure out what it means in their own context and in their own lives and in their own journey. And, and so I think that that ends up being a harder road to take. Um, and, and I think that this, this way that, that we've seen Christianity kind of move um, where we have brought it to a place where it's this, you know, oh, all you need to know is X, Y, and Z, pray a prayer, and walk it out, and you're good, and then just go to church, mm-hmm. you know, on top of it. Um, I don't think that we're actually really creating people that, that are wrestling it out, people that are feeling what is the, the cost of following after Christ, uh, what does it mean um, you know, to embrace these things um, in, in the world that we live in today. Um, or the, the experience of getting to reach one of those sort of aha moments. Mm-hmm. I, there's a real joy in that. And I, th- I think it's exciting when someone else can do that on their own. And that I think more of that is reading along with people rather than, like you said, sort of standing up in front of people and saying, okay, this is the text we're going to read for today. This is what it means. Um, So when people go back to that text, they'll feel equipped in the sense that someone has already told them what it means. Yeah. Versus, you know, this is a way, this is something that 
um, you know, I experienced or I, I see going on and I feel like the text can speak to this in this way. Um, and then people being able to maybe pull from that, well, I see this going on and I feel like the text is addressing this in this way. Um, and th- it being more of kind of a conversation, but there is, I don't know, that's one of the things that has been seminal to me in my faith, um, in, in the years is to figure out what the word know means. Like you, the scripture talks about knowing God or knowing Jesus. Paul talked about the sort of overwhelming joy of knowing, um, Christ um, knowing Christ's love is that word. No, it's not, it, it is not, uh, what we would think of as knowledge, which is what you were describing. I think a lot of people would think of no as sort of memorization of facts mm-hmm. or being able to have a ready, a ready answer. Um, it's not an exper- experiential knowledge, but the word no in the, in the scriptures, that's what it's talking about. It's, it's the way that people know each other when they're married or when they're in a relationship it's a very experiential thing that happens over a long period of time with commitment from both sides. And I don't know, you're not, especially if you are sort of ready-made giving, handing over this like definition of no to people, then you're blocking out anything that reaches beyond that, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, that's why I think that, that in many ways you hear people describe faith as a journey. And you know, there's a difference between me going on a trip and taking pictures because each of those pictures is a remembrance of where I was, what was happening, what it smelled like, what we were doing, you know, those kind of things. And, you know, for me to sit down and be able to say, hey, look at this picture. I'm going to tell you about what happened in it. And and I, I can give you information and knowledge, but you're not going to know what it was like to be there in that moment. Right, exactly. Um, and I think that happens from the pulpits too often, is, is that there's been somebody that has wrestled through this. There's been somebody that has that has journeyed to get, like you're saying, the, the knowledge and the wisdom behind this. But a lot of those things, with, with wisdom and knowledge, it has to be earned. You know, it has to be uh, stumbled through um, the good times and the bad times. You know, perspective happens that way. And when we steal those opportunities and we create a culture within the church that they just need to be able to listen to other people that have experienced this, it's not the same as them experiencing it themselves. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we're just not, we're, we're arming people with facts, right? We're not actually equipping people to be, to go out and experience God in their own realm. Yeah. And those facts are, I would put quotes around the facts too, because (laughs) that's true. It's subjective. Yeah. Yeah, not not quite understandable what the facts mean. And I think it's really dangerous, too, because those things change over time. And, you know, people 10 years down the road are still, like, holding on to the same meaning of something when they see the world in a different way. It's very difficult to, you know... I mean, then you just begin sort of manufacturing these adaptations so that you can accommodate what people handed on to you um, as as facts, you know, because facts are things that are not supposed to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but I mean, we change, you know, the world yeah. changes and, and it's a very, it's not quite as useful of a thing, you know, if you're looking kind of five, 10 years down the road. Well, and it's something that I've heard over and over again, especially during, I mean, we begin to talk about the religious right. We begin to talk about even just politics in general, you know, th- one thing that gets thrown around is that the idea that you can possess truth. 
Mm-hmm. You know, meaning that like one side will say, oh, well, we have the truth and the truth, you know, you can't argue this and this is what it is like, like, as if it's a stagnant thing that, that, that's, that stands there and that somehow that I understand all of it mm-hmm. and you understand none of it. And, and I think some of it is again, again, I mean, we've kind of gotten to this place in culture and history, um, especially in America where we are so polarized and the idea that somehow, without conversation in the middle, that somebody that is relegated way to this side on the right or way to this side on the left, and that is like built fences and walls to keep others out, that somehow that you can solely possess that truth. If that makes sense, I mean, some of it, like again, we're talking about wisdom and knowledge, needs to be wrestled out, it needs to be challenged, it needs to be experienced. And things change, like you'd said, like over time in life, I mean, certain uh, bits of wisdom speak deeper to me mm-hmm. uh, because I've been through things. I've been there. It's in different situations. And left, left behind as a sort of a cultural document, I think it, it proves that point that, um, you know, whereas people in the past have said, you know, the world is ending on this day and yeah. that was proven wrong. Uh, when you sort of lay these things out as these like literal facts, um, you know, you can see how left behind was responding to its, its uh, milieu, its world. Um, And now the world is very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, mean, somewhat the same, but, uh, and I think that's the danger of kind of laying out, um, you know, this is the way that you should read this, Mm -hmm. that, 20 years down the, down the road, more than likely you're going to be proven wrong. Yeah. It's, it's just going to look wrong. So I, I don't know. That's why I think it's really important to sort of draw people into a wrestling and a, uh, a living out and an experiencing of that process of being able to figure out, you know, what is this trying to say to us now and what are we supposed to do about it rather than necessarily laying out some sort of system that, people are going to be able to, you know, pick up a book and um, read accessibly on, a, on an airplane when they're hoping not to get sucked out of the, the window. Yeah, well, as, long the as, Nick, as long as Nick Cage is flying it. Yeah. They nope. have little rapture parachutes under the seats. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> In case of rapture. That's right. But, um, but no, but, but what you're also mentioning here is, is hitting on something deeper that... And, and I think that that's, we've seen culture move there, um, but we've also seen the church move there. We, when we make things about our own personal knowledge, our own personal relationship, our own personal stuff, you know, wrestling doesn't really happen on your own. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're like, what is it, at the beginning of Fight Club? When, yeah. Ed, when Ed Norton goes to oh, his no, boss no, and beats himself alert. up. Yeah. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to that spoiler. I was just going, <laughs> there's like, there's a scene where his boss... Uh, he's challenged, Ed, Ed Norton's challenging his boss mm-hmm. and uh, begins to, essentially, he gets into a fight uh, with himself um, <laughs> in order to make it look like the boss beat him up yeah. type of a situation. So that's not really like the kind of wrestling that, <laughs> that we're talking about within here. But I think that one of the important things is I think the Bible speaks differently in community with people, mm-hmm. like when it's wrestled in community. Not simply just saying, I already know this, I have this, it's just a bunch of facts and figures in my head and I can move on my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've, I think the further cult- cultures move towards like um, individualism and, and how we identify in that way, I think it's, we've lost um, this deeper wrestling 
um, in community with folks. And I, and I think, and even furthermore, I, and I really don't think we look at community um, in the way that we should. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one, like geographically, I, I feel like that we don't pay attention to our communities in that context, but also I think we don't cultivate community as in having folks that you can do life with, that you can wrestle through scripture with um, appropriately. So you're saying we're just Snapchatting our faith. Oh, like it. Yes. And so last, last is we're like in the final like a uh, minute or so of the show. Um, one thing I do want to ask, Ben, and this may be homework for you, that you will need to report back um, if you have not already done this. Book report. Have you? Well, no, this is the kind of homework you'd like. Have you ever played a Left Behind Tribulation Force? No, I have not. That is a video game. Is there a Bible gun involved? Um, well, I do remember this. This is a few years back this came out. So again, when we're talking about this thing, are, were we writing these books strictly to be able to reach people, or is this a whole marketing way to make money? Uh, I'll leave that up to you, uh, dear viewers. But there is a game, and I'm pretty sure you can find it. It's called Left Behind Tribulation Force. And what I do remember of it was that fo- <laughs> folks kind of got mad about this a few years ago when it came out because you could you could pick to be a, a man or a woman you know, in this, but if you were a female character, uh, the only job you could have is being a helper to the men, <laughs> to, wow. to the men in it. Whereas if you were if you were a male character, you could have all these different kind of jobs and things to do. You weren't just a helper mate type type of thing like <laughs> like that. Um, hmm. So Ben, you have homework um, to be able to find this game. Uh, please don't pay for it <laughs> uh, because hmm. yeah, I might so, I might just YouTube yeah. a video of someone playing it. Maybe. Okay, that may be less time. Um, for you to invest in. But uh, as we begin to, to round this up, it just we started talking about Tim LaHaye, and I think it also just begs to be saying, this may come to the part where I was uh, saying something I didn't want to do earlier about pissing on someone's grave. But some of Tim LaHaye's legacies, A, we had already mentioned Kirk Cameron, mm-hmm. like being here. I mean, he they, were, they he, were like besties. He, right? didn't, he didn't father him, but um, I think he gave his, his career a second wind. Um, but a few other things that we can say, uh, he was very uh, influential in the idea of con- uh, conversion therapy. Was he really? Yeah, he wrote books and other stuff about that. I'm not oh. saying he was the guy who Yikes. started it, but I think perpetuating it and bringing it to a larger audience uh, and a larger way of thinking, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. Yeah, yes, so, goodness gracious. Yeah, so conversion therapy, which, which I've heard is fun. It's, it's just like camp. Sarcasm with water. <laughs> yeah, what with, kind with of wa- camp? With waterboarding, concentration or, or, camp, <laughs> and the Guantanamo kind of Bay camp. Yeah, could be. Um, so that kind of stuff. But also, here's one thing that I do need to note, and this was in his obituary. Um, it said also in the in the 70s, LaHaye encouraged uh, the late Jerry Falwell Sr. to establish the moral majority as a way to build um, support um, and uh, like a coalition, like nationally. So again, when we've ripped on the religious right and the moral majority, um, he was the guy that like whispered in um, yeah in Falwell's ear, and apparently Falwell's like, "That sounds like a good idea." Um, I'd have no. I'm going to start a university. Oh, but sadly, we have run out of time, and apparently, I've run out of urine from peeing on graves. Um, I'll have to go get more coffee for us to continue this <laughs> later. But um, any, uh, you well, I'll go ahead. And, uh, yeah. So just a reminder that as we end this broadcast, that you can catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. You can catch all of our old shows. Uh, go on Facebook and Twitter, look up Snarky Faith. We're there. Like us. Hey, if you feel charitable, also hop over on iTunes. Give us 
five, is it four? Five star ratings here. I like five better than four. And we love hearing from you. You can uh, write us at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And that is all we got this week. We are out of here. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, Question askers, doubters, and skeptics is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com. <laughs>